Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Frankavilla Show. I'm your host, Dr. Carolyn Frankavilla, board-certified family physician and diplomate of the American Board of Obesity Medicine. I've been helping patients lose weight to treat and prevent medical problems for the last 10 years, and I'm taking what I've learned from them to you. In this podcast, you will learn the science behind why you struggle with your weight and what to do about it, tips for common challenges, work to fight bias about what a healthy weight really is, and improve your relationship with food and your body. Please remember that while I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. This podcast is meant to be informational in nature only, not medical advice. Please seek out care from your physician for your specific needs. Okay, let's get started. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. Today, I have a fantastic obesity physician expert with us today, Dr. Beverly Chang, and we're going to dive into when you need to see an expert, when you need to see an obesity specialist. That's often who my guests are on this show, but sometimes you may get obesity or weight treated with someone else, and so we're going to dive into some of that today. So a little bit about Dr. Beverly Chang. She is an assistant professor of clinical medicine at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York. She is triple boarded in internal medicine, endocrinology, and obesity. She's the program director of the Obesity Medicine Fellowship and president of the Tri-State Obesity Society. Dr. Chang is passionate about education as well as evidence-based medicine. She's very active in organizations like the Obesity Society and the American Diabetes Association. She's an advisor and consultant for lots of stakeholders, including Nova Nordisk and the American Board of Obesity Medicine. And we can find out more about her. I'll put the link in the show notes if you want to read her full bio, because she does a lot. So thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. How did you get involved in the field of obesity, of of treating weight? What was sort of your interest or how did you end up specializing in this? Well, I am an endocrinologist by trade, actually. And as with the trajectory of many medical specialties now, we're finding ourselves getting deeper and deeper into subspecialties. So among all of the things endocrinologists do, in addition to menopause or thyroid or diabetes, Obesity is among those subspecialties. And I think what drew me to obesity more than anything else was the patients. I don't know how you feel about it, but I feel like our patients who come seeking weight management are actually the most interesting and motivated people I've ever met. And they're so thoughtful and well-read about the entire weight loss scape that we always have really fun conversations. And so ultimately my job is fun and doesn't always feel like work, which is great. And that's kind of why I'm still here. I love it. Yeah. If you find something that you enjoy, right, they say you'll never work a day in your life, right? So if if you enjoy it, if it's your passion, then it, it doesn't feel like work. And I agree. I've always enjoyed having these conversations with patients and there's so much we have to learn, right? Like I've learned so much from my patients over the years. And when I first started doing this, I would often tell my patients like, gosh, it sounds like you know more about nutrition than I do. You know, you've tried every nutrition plan out there. Like you have done a lot. And and so, and it was such an underrepresented field, right? Like there wasn't a lot of people doing this a while ago. And so there was so much 
you know, intellectual curiosity, I guess, in obesity medicine, where we could really start trying to figure out what's going on. Why is this so hard for, for people to lose weight? And it's such an accessible topic too, which also drew me to being so interested in it because it's one of those things where you think about for yourself, like, what should I be eating? Should I be eating? Should I have a protein shake before or after I work out? Those types of things. And when you start Googling, you're just like every other patient. You're trying to sort through all of the misinformation, all of the noise, and you don't know what's evidence-based. You don't know if it applies to you. And that's kind of what happened with me. I was Googling about nutrition because that's not part of our medical school curriculums, right? And I didn't know what the truth was. So that's that got me into a lot of deep dives into nutrition and weight management, the pathophysiology of obesity. So now it's fun to kind of sort through all of that data with patients. And one of the things you said there, I think deserves attention, which is like, what's the best thing for me, right? So different foods work well for different people. And so I always, when I teach other physicians, I'm like, don't be a zealot for any particular diet. If plant-based works well for you, fantastic. If low carb works well for you, fantastic. If fasting works well for you, fantastic. What is going to work for the patient that you're helping, right? Like different things work for different people. And a lot of times our patients come in and they can tell us what has worked or hasn't for them, right? And sometimes we have to help guide them towards what makes sense. But I think that it's hard when we're looking at nutrition information because there's people who have amazing success stories with lots of different ways of eating. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. I agree. So one thing I am not sure I've actually talked about on this podcast, and I realized it this past week because I had sent a medication for a patient and they were saying, hey, the pharmacy needs to have the obesity diagnosis on this medication. Do I have obesity? And I was like, oh, wow. So I don't really use that word a lot for my patients. I just use the word weight. Um, I think people like to use that term more for themselves. And obesity kind of sounds technical. It's it's sort of not a term people use to describe themselves in everyday conversation very often. And so I actually thought maybe one of the first things we could do is talk about what is obesity? Like, what is the definition of obesity? Because again, I tend to use the word weight a lot. I think that's a lot more comfortable to term for people. But yeah, how would you describe obesity? What is obesity? Yeah, I'm the same with you. I I use weight as my preferred term, weight issues, weight management. And there's a lot of data out there to suggest that that's what patients prefer as well, because the term obesity carries so much stigma with it for decades now. Um, I mean, technically, the way we medical societies define obesity is through the body mass index, which is this measure of height versus weight. And if you have a BMI, uh, the acronym is body mass index BMI. If you have a BMI of 30 or greater, then you have obesity. We can go through a whole other hour of why the pros and cons of BMI, but um, ultimately that's the definition that has persisted through our literature. So all of our evidence for treatment works with that categorization. And that's how people that has percolated into the general public as well. So some people are looking up their BMIs and kind of deciding or concluding what their health is like based on that. I find it to be a useful starting point. I always say that information is not the same as education, Mm. right? 
knowing your BMI is a piece of information, but we need to have the context of where it came from. What does it mean for you? You know, back to that individuality piece. What does that mean for you in terms of your health? And that really gets us to education. And so it's funny because, because of the incredible interest around anti-obesity medications, the GLP-1s, et cetera, I almost feel like we as a medical community have been taking the term obesity back in a way that it's become more objective. Patients see it on their chart and they accept finally that it is a medical disease. It's not describing them. It's not defining them. It is almost unemotional, objective term, just like hyperlipidemia or hypertension. And so I, I hope that we continue in that direction where it becomes destigmatized. It is very much a medical disease and everyone accepts that. And as a person in the profession, I hope that we come to better definitions of obesity. That's not just based on. Yes. And I I think that's going to happen. You know, it's absolutely something that's going to happen, but we're very slow in medicine, right? Like we have to look at all the data and, you know, this group has to meet and that group has to meet. And, and for us to agree, you know, to what those new definitions are, how else like that, I don't know. That's like maybe a decade away, right? Like it's not something that's going to happen overnight. So we're having those conversations, right? And I, maybe I'm not quite as optimistic as you, but I hope also that we will be there where it's just a number, right? Because there is so much stigma. And I'll often say to my patients, it's just a number, right? Like, do you get upset when you look at your labs that come back from me and your potassium's a little high or a little low? You know, do you take that personally if your kidney function's a little off? Are you taking that personally on the lab results? And usually people don't, right? They're like, hey, doctor, what should I do about this? Like, how worried do I need to be? They're not personally feeling like they did something wrong because they're anemic or something, right? Like, oh no, like I have low red blood cells. Like I'm, I did something wrong. Just how do we fix it? Right. And so I think we need to look at obesity and that BMI number. Like it's just a number, right? What do we, is it a problem? Do we need to do anything? And I like what you said too. It's a starting point, right? Sometimes I'll say it's a screening tool. BMI should just be a screening tool. It is not the entire diagnosis, right? If your BMI is 32, but you are, you know, a jujitsu champion and have a six pack, like you don't have obesity, right? Like that BMI is not a problem for you. So I think that, yeah, we have to look at the individual to figure out if it really, really is an issue. And I don't know about you, but most of my patient population are women and they're always surprised when I tell them, you know, there's no BMI scale for men versus women. We actually use the same scale, whether you're a man or a woman or, or other identified, right? And it sort of dawns on them, like, why? That doesn't make any sense. We have totally different body compositions and we go through totally different life, major life changes. And historically, this surprises them too, that, or doesn't surprise us, but historically the BMI was developed based on men. I mean, it wasn't just Caucasian men. They had a few people from like Japan and Egypt and other countries, but it was men. And then the insurance companies decided that it was good enough for women. 
And so we just applied it across the board and that's what we have, unfortunately. Unfortunately, that's like a lot of medicine, right? We were like, oh, work for for women too. But you know, that's a great, a great point. And I actually don't know that I point that out very often um, myself, but when we use waist circumference as another measure of if someone's weight may be causing them health problems or not, or we use a body fat percentage, we do use different cutoffs for men versus women for those two, right? So that's a great point about the BMI that, you know, it it doesn't take it, it doesn't take into account race or anything else that we know has an effect on the relationship between weight and health. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So a lot of times on my podcast, I have other obesity experts like you, people who have done additional training, have specialized in this. Who are sort of our obesity specialists or weight specialists? Like who do we consider that? If someone is interested in seeing someone who's more of an expert in this field, who are those people? You know, I would say a good place to start is the American Board of Obesity Medicine website, abom.org. These are individuals who chose to do more education, to take an extra exam to be certified in obesity medicine. Um, I can't speak to the full you know, range of quality of all of these certified practitioners, but I think it says a lot when we go through four years of medical school, three years of training, and then be elect to do additional training on top of that. It means you're really accessing a group of doctors who are very much passionate about this subject. So I want patients to, if you can, seek someone out who is certified in obesity medicine. I think ultimately, you know, the field is changing and we're recognizing, of course, that there are over a hundred million adults with obesity. There's like 6,000-ish of us certified obesity medicine specialists. So that ratio is totally off. Like we certified obesity specialists cannot take care of everyone with obesity. Uh, So I think we all recognize whether you're in internal medicine or you're a surgeon or you're a psychiatrist, OBGYN, that you're taking care of people with obesity, right? One out of three people, almost two out of three people have overweight or obesity, two out of three of your patients. And really, so at some point we have to see it as not necessarily a subspecialty disease. It really is a primary care disease and specialty disease and kind of all hands on deck disease. And that really needs to be the first door that opens for people that you need to be able to speak to your doctor and that doctor needs to be educated about how to speak about how to speak about obesity. Seeing someone like myself who did, you know, the endocrine education, three years of that, plus an extra year of obesity fellowship means you're accessing a different level of expertise where that not everyone may necessarily need, right? Some people are perfectly comfortable um, doing a specific nutrition strategy with their doctor and their dietitian. You don't necessarily need someone like me who prescribes medications and doing all of this as a primary care physician, or even as a cardiologist, for example, they may prescribe a GLP-1 for various indications, and the patient loses 12 or 15% of their weight. Beautiful, that works. That could almost be our first line medication. But then 10% of patients won't respond based on the data. And so what happens to those 10% of patients? 
maybe those actually come to seek a subspecialized obesity physician like myself. And then I'm there kind of playing around with GLP-1s, doing off-label medications, having like a multi-drug regimen to find something that works for them. So ultimately I see the field of obesity care being kind of tiered, but not in a hierarchical way, in a way that we see high cholesterol, right? Everyone can prescribe a statin. If you don't do well with the statin, then maybe we have you see a lipidologist or a cardiologist or the same thing with diabetes. Everyone can prescribe metformin. Most people are comfortable doing that even for off-label uses like anti-aging or anti-cancer, right? And, but if you don't do well with metformin or maybe you're a more complicated case, then we have you see an endocrinologist. So I really think obesity is just going to be treated the way other chronic diseases are being treated today. And I think that you're so right, where most doctors are going to become more comfortable with prescribing these medications, right? And maybe sending the patient to a higher level if, if something doesn't make sense, right? If, if a medication isn't working that well, if there's some other symptoms that maybe make them think that this is a little bit more complicated, someone who's tried a lot of things and it didn't work, um, you know, send us the hard cases, send the experts the hard cases, I think is, is sort of what we're saying. So I think it's perfectly reasonable if you are needing help with your weight to start with your primary, right? Ask them. A lot of doctors have done a, a little bit more training at this point. They're more familiar with the medications. They're familiar with different nutrition strategies. And so they may be able to start that for you. They may also work with a dietitian or other team members in their clinic who may be able to support you. And then if they can't, then, you know, I would ask them if they know anyone else in the area that is able to help you. If there is an endocrinologist or an obesity specialist or a nurse practitioner or whoever who focuses on weight in the area who they might refer you to. Um, what do you think about some of these big online platforms as well, right? So there's a lot of places people can go, you know, directly um, and seek care and get medications online right now. I don't know if you have any familiarity with any of those programs, if there's any that you think are are better to look into or what you think of those. Yeah, you know, I think the telehealth programs have exploded probably as part of the pandemic and some of the reimbursement rates. I borrow a term from Ted Kyle, founder of Conscious Health, who calls it obesity commerce over obesity care. Mm. And I think there's a lot there to unpack because these telemedicine companies, most of them, and not all of them, but most of them are putting a lot of their money into ads and marketing. And I'm sure you're getting these on social media as well, where you can just fill out a forum and pick up GLP-1, getting that delivered to your door. Meanwhile, the rest of us providers are looking at the GLP-1 shortages and wondering where are they getting these GLP-1s from, <laughs> right? Suspicious. And they're like $1,000 retail, but this patient is paying $100 per month for a GLP-1. Big red flag, you know? And so I think, unfortunately, the financial incentives behind the field of obesity the 80 billion weight loss industry has brewed a number of different entrepreneurs in private equity where the healthcare, the care of people isn't necessarily the first priority. That's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, 
but I don't want to discount telehealth entirely though, because I definitely see a future where that might be the really the only accessible way for some people. Right, right. If you're, I don't in, know a, about you. if you're in a more rural area, you don't have right? as many options. Maybe your doctor doesn't have the time to deal with the prior authorizations, right? They support exactly. you taking the medication. They'll help you with nutrition. They'll check your blood pressure, but they they don't have unlimited resources to do all the paperwork to help you get the medicine for $150 a month. Exactly. And I don't know about you, but my waiting list is like three or six months, you know? And for a patient to wait three or six months to see me for initial visit, it just, it just seems unfair. Right. And in the interim, are they going to go online and Google GLP ones? Yes, of course, they're going to look for information wherever they can get it. Might they sign up for a telemedicine provider who has an available appointment tomorrow? I would not fault them to do so. So I think there is an access issue that telehealth could potentially fix, but it really needs to be targeted to the right population of individuals, those who are, you know, fairly healthy. Maybe they're not on other medication. Maybe one day we're looking at it for preventative health, people who are healthy. And we could be using some of these medications to prevent diabetes if you have a strong family history or strong risk factors for that. So I think using telehealth and having that kind of low touch, high access option should be a goal to develop towards as long as it's, you know, still clinically safe and effective. Yeah. And I think if you are utilizing one of those programs, which may be the very easiest way to access care for a lot of people right now, like you said, I mean, you're an expert, you would be a fantastic person to see people are going to wait three or six months to see you. I basically don't even take new patients right now because there's so much on my plate right now. And so my clinic does, but, but I personally just want to give really good care to the people I already have. And, you know, people see me forever basically. So at some point I get full, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So there is an access issue. Absolutely. And so I would encourage people, if you are getting your medication elsewhere to make sure you do let your primary care doctor know so that they know that's part of your treatment plan because they may need to adjust some of your other medications like your thyroid medication or your birth control or something else based on that. And they may be able to offer you additional nutrition support or check your labs or things like that. And so definitely just because you're getting care someplace else, let your regular doctor also know that you're taking these things because sometimes that gets lost in, in the shuffle as well. And as a primary care doctor as well, like we want to know what you're taking, even if it's not from us. You mentioned birth control. I, and I always like to use that as an analogy because I think back when I was in medical school 10 or so years ago, getting birth control was a whole to do. Like I had to wait months to see an OBGYN or my primary, you have to go through blood work and an exam and you get a physical prescription and then you wait for that to be filled. And Like it's just, it's a whole process. Whereas now because of telehealth and quote unquote pill mills, we can submit our information, prove or attest that we are generally healthy and we don't smoke and we don't have clots and all of these things. And we get birth control delivered to our door. Yeah. It is, I think that's progress actually to be able to increase access to half of the population to a point that it's probably really making a huge 
leaps in our quality of lives. Absolutely. And so am I advocating for pill molds for obesity? No, not at all. But if we look at that heuristic or yeah, that couldn't, could there be a future where having that level of access for a very specific population be beneficial? And I see that to be possible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I've done telehealth since before the pandemic, way before it. And it's, I mean, it's so effective because it, it's more convenient, right? I mean, people don't have to leave work to go see a doctor. They don't have to miss time with their kids. It's so much more convenient and mm -hmm. often quicker, you know, to, to take care of things by telehealth. So if someone made an appointment with you, for example, an obesity expert, we can both kind of talk about how, how things look like, what's that look like? What do you do? What do you do at that first appointment when you're trying to figure out how you're going to help uh, this person? And I guess the reason I'm asking is like in an ideal world, what does care for someone's weight? What does obesity care look like? What does that, you know, appointment look like in an ideal world? I mean, I think it, a lot of it is similar to what primary care doctors do. And that's just because obesity touches upon every aspect of a person's life. You know, you get them past medical history, you talk about family history, social history, um, all of the different comorbidities that are, of course, related to their weight. But really, when it gets down to it, you want to know what that person's journey has been. I think you mentioned earlier, like, you know, Different diets work for different people, for example. I want to know what worked for you. I want to know whether you are still doing that particular strategy or why that was difficult to sustain for you. I want to know about like the environmental stressors, what's challenging you to make the changes that you want to make, physical activity or whatever it may be. Ultimately, you know, I specialize in medical weight management, which means the pharmacotherapy piece. So I prescribe a lot of medications for the treatment of obesity. And so a lot of my history and our discussions with patients center around how do we figure out the best medication regimen for you? And I always, I teach my fellows kind of this four C's mnemonic where C number one is contraindications, right? As doctors, our first call to action is to do no harm. Yeah. So if there's anything that the patient has as a medical condition happens to be a contraindication for certain medications, you take those medication options off your list. The second C is comorbidities, right? A lot of these medications now have multiple indications. We're using medications off-label for obesity. For example, uh, bupropion is used for to treat depression, and we use it off-label for obesity. And so we're looking for comorbidities that may have multiple benefits from a, one medication, right? How do we optimize that? Uh, the third C is cost. Unfortunately, yeah. that is probably the biggest C of like, which insurance do you have? And uh, are you able to pay out of pocket? Most people aren't, you know, but it's the question of what is accessible to you, what's affordable and feasible in the long term. And then the final C is really, you know, it's choice. It's the patient's choice. So that, of course, goes back to what's the patient's preference. We have to devise this regimen uh, as part of a shared decision-making process, because if I just decide paternalistically what you're going to take, 
then we know adherence may not be as good. It needs to have the patient meet us halfway. Yeah, I love it. And I teach basically the same thing. I don't think I have a fancy four C's, but um, those are the same concepts that that I go through and that I'm trying to figure out with my patients, right? Is, you know, what medicine makes sense for you? What can't you have, right? Like what is not a safe choice for you? What would potentially make your health worse? Because if you're on a certain medication, it may interact. If you have a history of seizures, some of the medicines may not be a good fit, things like that. And then the cost, like you said, you know, has become a big part of the discussion. But some of the things in what the patient wants, what's their preference is kind of interesting, right? So when I present the different medications and say, you know, like ZetBound is the most effective, it has an average 20% weight loss, Wagovi is the most effective, it has like a 15% weight loss, um, Ventramine plus Depiramate is like the next most effective, it has like maybe a 10% weight loss. And we talk about all that, a lot of people like they're like, well, I want the thing that has the biggest weight loss, right? So that may be how they choose. But at other times, you know, part of the discussion is, you know, we have some of these medications that are really old, which means we know a lot about them, right? Fentermine came out in 1959. That's the same year my mom was born. She's going to kill me if she finds out how often I say this. But, you know, it's an old medication. And and so we know a lot about it, right? Like we know Fentermine is not going to have some unexpected side effects. People have been taking this medication for 65 years, right? And so some people are like, well, that sounds like we know a lot about this medication, right? There is there's no surprising information. I don't think that's going to come out about Fentramine. We know all the good and bad about it at this point, right? It's been out for so long. So many people have taken it. And some people see the newest medication and they're like, whoa, this med has only been out for a year. Maybe I want to try something that we have a lot more knowledge about first, right? So there is all those decisions that go in, or maybe they know their sister or their mother did fantastic with a certain medication and they want to try that because they know that their family member did really well with it. So lots of different decision-making that, that goes into that. And I agree, that's a big part of the visit, you know, for me as a physician is, is what medication is most likely to work based on what you're describing, right? If you think about food all the time versus you never feel full, those are different things and different medicines may work differently for you, right? So mm -hmm. that's a big part of what I'm trying to figure out when I get the history is like, what is the struggle if we can figure it out? And I love reassuring people exactly that of like the history and the timeline. Because I think this whole obesity and weight loss medications feel new to people. It just kind of just entered the public space for the past year yeah. or two, right? But you and I have been in the space for decades. We're aging ourselves, but for maybe less than a decade, right? Um, but like you said, fentramine has been around since 1959. The obesity field, people have been trying to lose weight forever, right? You could go back into like BC era. In modern history, we've been trying to use thyroid hormone forever to see if that could cause weight loss uh, safely. It does cause weight loss, but not safely. Um, <laughs> And so the GLP-1s, which is what everyone comes in asking about, some people are turned off because, yeah, it just came to the market recently. But the first GLP-1 came out in like 2003, I want to say. Yeah. So we have almost like 20 years of experience right. with that. Now, the caveat, of course, is 
the utilization of the GLP-1s is at its all-time high. And it's not just use, but potential abuse mm-hmm. or misuse. Some people, I'm sure, are taking GLP-1s when it's not indicated for diabetes or obesity or you know, overweight BMI of 27 with weight-related comorbidities for like the actual FDA-approved indication. So I'm keeping an open mind because we are always hearing about, you know, these side effect stories. We know the side effect profiles of these medications. Nothing's really surprising us. Every once in a while, we get a media headline about suicidal ideation, right? We had a recent paper, peer-reviewed papers, shutting that down. But there's still that bit about stomach paralysis with the GLP-1s. And I understand the level of caution that we're, we're approaching the GLP-1s with because it's just such a popular topic and such a popular drug to think about and ask for. But remember that we never have the full story. Some of these scenarios may very well be a situation of misuse. And that just means, again, back to you know, why do we see an obesity specialist? You want to make sure you're seeing a doctor who knows what they're talking about and who really is specialized in obesity and can talk to you about whether this strategy, nutrition, physical activity, pharmacotherapy, procedure, surgery, et cetera, which of these strategies make sense for you? Yeah. And I agree. I mean, this, this class of medications has been out for 20-ish years now. And so there, mm-hmm. it's not a brand new technology. But like you said, more people than ever are on these medications. And historically, until just a few years ago, the vast majority of people who were on the GLPs had type 2 diabetes, right? And so mm-hmm. now we're using it in a different group of people. And, you know, we will see some side effects from that. But when we look at the overall safety data, like they overall have, I think why people are looking at them so closely is in some ways, the result seem too good to be true, right? Right. Like it feels like people are looking for the catch and like sometimes it's like the catch is we actually just have like really effective treatments right now, right? It's just, it's actually just, they're great, right? So so I think sometimes people are just looking for like, this seems too good to be true. We're like, no, we actually just have a really fantastic treatment option now. You know, it's so funny because I think Oprah commented on that, right? She was like, I didn't want to take the easy way out. But after speaking with Dr. Fatima Cody-Sanford and all their experts, she realized that yes, obesity is a disease. But I, I wanna push back a little bit because it's like, why not take the easy way, quote unquote, totally. right? Totally. Why shouldn't health be easy? And I think, unfortunately, the weight loss field has developed a rhetoric where we are battling our weight or we're fighting this and fighting that. And it feels like it needs to be a struggle. But in the end of the day, we actually want health to be easy. Right. Like what if it was easy? And I have a podcast episode I just did about that where I talk about my personal experience with my eyes. I had really, really bad vision and I got surgery and it was life-changing for me to be able to see without glasses because I had very, very, very bad vision. And (laughs) it was life-changing, right? And I was like, oh my gosh, this is like the magic wand for my eyes. And like, sometimes we have a magic wand for patients, whether that that's surgery or one of our new stronger medications, or sometimes the older medications are a magic wand for people too. And like, mm-hmm. what's wrong with that? If you've worked for years or decades 
and you have not been able to lose weight, you have not successfully treated obesity, like what's wrong with having a magic wand that now suddenly allows you to do that? Or even if you haven't worked that hard, even right. if you happen to just be born recently. Yeah, great. Right? Let's not make you go through all the suffering that other people exactly. went through. That would be great too. Yeah. Exactly. Take the easy way. I would take the easy way. Totally. Yes. And I've had patients recently tell me like they don't feel like exercise is exercise if it's not a struggle. And like, no, no, if you if you don't hate it, that's okay. Like you can like your exercise, (laughs) right? Like you can enjoy it. It cannot feel like death. That's fine. Right. And same things with nutrition. I had someone and and this was actually the conversation on meds. She's like, well, it just doesn't feel like it's gonna work if I'm not hungry. I'm like, no, it's actually going to work now that you're not hungry, right? Like when mm-hmm. you were trying to muscle through nonstop hunger and thinking about food, you were going to really struggle to lose weight. Now, if we can take that away and you can just eat what is recommended, what you want to eat, you know, this balanced meal, like now you can actually do it. Amazing, right? It's such a great feeling when when patients like have that moment of relief and a light bulb goes on. It's like, oh, wow, wait, this is, this is normal. I feel good. And that's okay. <laughs> right. Right. Is this what it has felt like for other people? Right. And I'm right. like, yeah, exactly. yeah, it that's is. That friend thing. you have that doesn't struggle with their weight. This is what they feel like. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have taken up a lot of your time. Thank you so much for chatting with me about this. What final thoughts, anything we didn't cover that you think is important for people to know as they may be considering, you know, medical obesity treatment, or they're trying to figure out if they've been getting uh, the treatment they need so far? I think my final thought is just just keep an open mind, right? I think there's a lot of opinions out there, especially, you know, people who do take meds, people who don't take meds, nutrition wars, all of these things. Just remember that your medical issues are your own and what works for one person may not work for another. So it's important to, you know, do your own research, try gather as much information talk to different people and gather those opinions if you wish, but ultimately come back and see an obesity medicine specialist to help sort through that noise with you. Yeah. Yeah. It's complicated. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. If people want to connect with you or find you, where can they find you? Are you on social? Can you tell us where your clinic is? Like if people are trying to connect Uh with you in New York, I know we already said you have a big wait list. We'll make it a little longer. Uh Yeah. So I'm primarily a clinician. I work at Wild Cornell Medicine in New York City. Um, but I have a website, beverlychangmd.com. And I am, you can find me on X at bevchangmd. Great. And we'll put those in the show notes. And she posts awesome stuff. She's she's pretty spicy with a lot of her posts. She's not afraid to take positions on things. And I love them. So thank you so much for joining me today. And until next week, take care. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Frank Avila Show, where we learn about all things related to weight and health. If you love this podcast, make sure to leave those five-star reviews and share this podcast with a friend or loved one. If you have a topic about weight and health you want me to tackle, head over to the website, thedrfrankavillashow.com to submit your question. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss next week's episode. Take care. Thank you.